we're taking our Bibles for our Bible study this morning, and I want to invite you to go with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 28. The notes are in your Bible, are in your bulletin, but if you did not get those, then the ushers have some in hand. Just raise your hand, and they'll hand that to you as you go as they go through the auditorium. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 28. I'm going to join you in just a moment. We are um, ever so grateful for the music work that's been done in our church in these last few months. I mentioned Sunday night. I greatly appreciate the work that Bob Woodmark has done in leading the choir and Sharon Worley and putting together all the special music and the arrangements. And if you don't get, uh, if you haven't gotten a chance, make sure you thank them personally for the months and the weeks that they've been thrown in and they have picked up in a yeoman's way, learning and going through that. And that has been a blessing to our ministry. We have a wonderful Lord, do we not? The fact that Jesus saves us is amazing, absolutely amazing. Let's have a word of prayer real quick, and the fellows then can finish handing out, and we're going to do our Bible study. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you would save our souls. We do not deserve it, but we are ever so grateful. Help us never to get used to the fact that you have saved us from, the, from an eternity of damnation. Use the simple truths that we're sharing this morning, that if there's someone here who does not have that confidence, that they would be able to know before they leave today that they are on their way to heaven that Jesus has saved them. Thank you for the study that we've been able to go through these last months in the book of Judges. As we wrap it up today, I pray that you would just help us to be drawn closer to you and bless our lives as a result of the studies of these various men and ladies. And thank you especially for the life of Samuel and do commend him and thank him on our behalf for the life that he lived that can provide such a good example for us this day. We pray in your name. Amen. We go back in history and we find that there are a variety of different events where people made some really dumb mistakes. There's a George Warren talking to a George Atkins. This is back in Arizona in the 1880s. And what you have is Warren is a gentleman. He's at Atkins Bar and they get into an argument and Warren challenges Atkins to a to a race. I will run on foot. I'll race and outrace your horse, he says. He knows he'll never win the race if they go in a straight line, so he proposes that they run in an oval course, thinking that he can outmaneuver that horse and he's going to be able to beat him. Well, they did the race, and obviously the man did not outrun the horse. Now, the gambling stakes were this. If I win, I get your horse. If you win, you get my three uh, holdings to a copper mine here in Arizona. Well, he lost. He had to give over his three holdings to those copper mines. And as a result, over the next 10 years, those copper mines produced $20 million worth of goods. He didn't get a bit of it. By the way, just an additional thought, the rest of the story, that with Mr. Warren, about four years after this race, he was declared mentally unsound, surprise, and he had to give up all the rest of his dozen copper mine shares to other copper mines around Arizona and died penniless. But he wasn't a real bright man. Here's a group of people that were working in Chesterfield Canal in Nottinghamshire in England and this is in the 78s. It's a dredging crew. They're working hard and they're pulling out of this canal as they're dredging it. Some auto parts, you know, like a motor, some car doors. They got some washers and some dryers were pulled out of it and they were pulling a variety of things out as they were dredging and trying to, you know, get rid of some of the silt and the mud that built up and they hook onto a chain. Well, they pull this chain, and they pull, and they pull, and they finally get it out right before lunchtime, and they pull it out, and it's attached to a large piece of wood that obviously broke. And what happened was they broke for lunch. They're sitting over in an area, and all of a sudden somebody comes running over to them and says, the canal is draining. They all run back, and there's people gathered around the canal, and it is draining quickly, and there's a swirling spot right where this wood was. You know what they pulled? They pulled the plug, literally pulled the plug out of the canal, and it drained into the nearby river and left all kinds of you know, little boats there in the mud. Not a real sharp move on the part of the individuals. Here's a fellow that uh, back in, you know, in the turn of the century, he was building a mine or building a tunnel. He got a copper mine and some silver mine, he thought, that he was going to then you know, uh, work his, his claim. And he thought, well, wait a minute, there's this mountain. I'm on this side, and it's kind of in between mountain areas and I want to get on that side because on that side is where the road is that I could take my findings to town. So I'll dig through the mountain by hand I'll dig my own tunnel and I'll work through this and then when I'm done with the tunnel then I can mine my mine and I can just go out the road with my goods and take care of them. So he started working in 1906 about halfway through which is about you know 25 years later all of a sudden the railroad built 
a railroad track through that mountain area behind him at the beginning of his mind. But he didn't want to deal with that. You know, I'm still going to go to that road. So he continued, and he ended up working on this for 51 years. By hand, his only companions were two donkeys. And when it was all done, he was too exhausted to mind the mine. He is known in the uh, Guinness, uh, not, uh, in Ripley's, believe it or not, his, his term is the human mole. Okay? That's his history. That's his story. Not a real brilliant way to spend your life. You come across people like this in stories and you go, not real sharp. But then you come across other people that are like the judges. That they live around a lot of people who are not too sharp when it comes to spiritual things. You remember the book of Judges we've been talking about for the last months. How the people just, they walked away from the Lord. They did dumb things spiritually. But there's this 12 different judges that stand out. They are people that God can use. Most of them are very godly individuals that God uses to try to bring about repentance and a change in their lives. The one that we've been talking about, the last judge, is Samuel. Samuel is just a phenomenal character. In fact, i got to tell you this. Samuel reminds me of a lot of you folk. He is an extremely godly individual, a very dedicated individual, like a lot of you here. He's, you look at his life, and, and this guy is just, you go through. And the verses that we've looked up over the study is how he was from little on. The Lord was with him, the statement. He is called by strangers who don't know him, but people in the land of Israel who know of his reputation, a man of God, an honorable man. We read about in chapter 7 how he was just faithfully serving the Lord and going from town to town, leading the people in worship, and then he builds an altar for personal worship. Very godly individual. That surprises me in, to some degree. Just like some of you, you know, he's very, very godly. And when you consider how hard it is to be godly, like in his case, to be godly in really bad days. He's living in a time that is the, one of the darkest periods of time in Jewish history. Do you remember the book of Judges, how it talks about in chapter 2, we looked at this weeks and weeks ago, where it says the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baal. They forsook the Lord their God and provoked the Lord to anger. This repeats itself multiple times. There is another passage that repeats itself on two occasions. It says every man did that which was right in his own eyes because there was no king in the land. Basically everybody was their own authority, their own rule, spiritually, physically, in so many ways. And in the midst of all this, Samuel is living godly in the midst of an ungodly society. You see, I I, I see a comparison to many of you people. Because I understand that the Bible predicts that in the day that we live in, in the latter days, that it's going to be perilous times. The Bible predicted years ago what it would be like today, that men would be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, heady, haughty. He says, high, lovers of, of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but no power thereof. That describes our day. That's because we're in those latter days. And yet many of you here are godly like Samuel. That's amazing. That's great. That's commendable. Samuel is a godly person, even though there's others around him. Some of his fellow believers, some of his comrades in arms, they drift away from the Lord. You remember his story that when he's a young boy, he's put into the care of the mentor called Eli. Eli has two boys, and as Samuel grows up as a teenager, as he grows up as a young adult, he is surrounded by these men working together with him. They're his, they're his leaders, they're his teachers, but they are very corrupt. They are ungodly individuals. They steal part of the sacrifice that people bring. We read about it in First Sam. We read about, studied it, how they're called sons of Belial, how they abused the advantage of their priestly office and took advantage of the females. Ungodly individuals. And he's growing up to thinking that this is the norm. This is the way it's done. And he never partakes. He's a godly individual to see the difference, that he shouldn't follow a crowd. And, and you know that, that Hophni and Phinehas were, were told by, by the Lord God that they were wrong and their dad was rebuked. But in the rebuke to their dad, there's something that stands out. Wherefore, kick you at my offering, which I have commanded you in my habitation, and you honor your sons above me to make yourselves fat. Do you remember when we studied this, we pointed out that even Eli, though he told his sons you're doing wrong, he took advantage himself of the stuff that they took from the people. He participated in a, in, a, in a passive way. 
He, he didn't rebuke the boys. Why? Because he was profiting from it. To, oh, guys, you shouldn't do that, but let me eat with you. This food that wasn't supposed to be eaten by the priests. Samuel grows up seeing this double standard. Samuel grows up in an environment where there's this corruption, and yet he never gets tainted by it. He doesn't say that this is the norm for me. He goes back to the Word of God and says, I'm to be godly. I'm to be different. I'm to be distinct. And he does it. He's a great man of God. When, especially when some of his closest allies in service, I mean, he anointed Saul to be king. He stood next to Saul and guided and advised him for 25 years. But King Saul starts drifting away. King Saul takes over the priestly office and offers sacrifice. And where we were last week in studying in 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul disobeys the clear command that God had told Samuel to tell to King Saul, destroy all of the goods and the peoples when you take Agag and the Amalekites in battle, destroy everything. And Saul refused to do it. And here is Samuel having worked with this man for 25 years and sees this man drift from the Lord. And Samuel remains true. He doesn't question. He doesn't get caught up in the moment. He doesn't get so discouraged by his investment in this man that it's not paying off now that he says, I quit. He remains a faithful servant to the Lord. He's a godly man. A godly man, even though he's got a busy life. I've just, in this study, I'm amazed that this man was as busy as he was. He was a personal counselor to thousands of people. He was going circuit-riding preaching because there was no specific tabernacle area. It had been destroyed by the Philistines when they took over Shiloh, as we pointed out several chapters ago. And so now he goes from town to town to town and leads in worship and leads in Bible study. And in order to help him, what he does is he starts what we hear in the Old Testament as the School of Prophets, an ancient seminary, an ancient Bible college, to train others to be able to assist in this work of teaching the Word of God. Though busy, surrounded by corruption, seeing others drift away, he remained loyal to God, just like a lot of you here. Commendations to you. Commendations to Samuel. There's some other parallels that I think are worth wrapping up his story that aren't so pleasant, that are kind of negative, but yet positive. Let me give you that parallel and speak very bluntly and very plainly this morning. Another parallel that many and most every one of us will have with Samuel is this, that like Samuel, if the Lord tarries, we're going to die. Now, isn't that a wonderful thought on a holiday weekend? Okay. It sounds very negative, but it's a very positive truth. We're going to die. We're going to end our life. And you can look in chapter 28 and look down in verse 3. And it makes the statement that Samuel died. He's 95 years old at the time that he dies. And when he dies, it says that very simply that the people mourn over him. In 1 Samuel 28 verse 3, Samuel was dead. And all Israel lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. Here he is, a godly man, and though he's godly and busy serving the Lord, he can't put off the inevitable. He is going to die physically and enter into the afterlife. That is true of all of us in this room. Unless the Lord, who has not yet chosen to do it, but if the Lord chooses to intervene by the rapture, which Paul thought was coming in his day, if the Lord tarries, we're going to die. There is going to be a funeral service for you. There's going to be one for me. There's going to be a time when people would cry, get together and lament and reflect because we've passed from this life. It happens to all of us. It is in God's plan for the ages that it says, by one man sin entered into the world, death by sin, so death is passed upon all people. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to avoid it. We want to spend the day talking about picnics and talking about all kinds of things, but the reality is the soldiers who gave their lives that we honor this weekend, they didn't join up into the military to die. They joined to fight, to live, and to get beyond the military. But they passed away. That's because the Word of God says to us that all of us are it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. It is an inevitability that we would like to think that it's going to happen to others, but sometimes it happens to families and to homes who aren't prepared for it. 
the Williams family had just moved into central Wisconsin in the late 90s. They got into the house that they had been dreaming of. There's mom and there's dad. There's Chris, age nine, and there's Mackie, age three. So they're in the house, they're unpacked, and so the boys want to camp out in their new house. So they naturally, they, dad says, sure, and they set up their, their tent in the living room with the video playing, and they're going to camp out. When mom says she's going to go to her own bed, she's not sleeping on the couch, she's going to get a good night's sleep after all the unpacking, and she kisses them all good night. She noticed that Mackie looked a little bit paler than normal, but it's been a busy day. They've been unpacking, they've been moving, he's been playing out in the backyard and throughout the whole day without a break. She goes to bed about 3 o'clock in the morning, she hears a call from her husband. Call 911. She comes running out. And he says, he's holding Mackie, three years old, and says, Mackie's not breathing. Call 911. She calls 911. She runs to the neighbor she had met who's a nurse working in the ER for her job. The nurse comes over and they do everything they can. The CPR. They try what they can. The ambulance arrives. They try what they can. But Mackie, at age three, doesn't survive. They find out only later that he had a perforated intestine. And he passed away. Three years old. Nobody thought about it. Nobody planned it. Nobody said, you know, they probably sat in sermons that said, death could have come to your home. And it was like, not our home. We're too young. You have the Sheffield couple. They met at work down in Washington, D.C., around 2005. They become co-workers and working in an industry down there in a, bill, in a, gov- a government agency working with the environmental services. And so they're, they've got goals. They've got plans. They both just out of college. They meet each other. They've got careers about how they're going to save the world, planet Earth, from itself. And they're working hard. They develop a friendship. The, defel- the friendship grows, and within four years, they get married. They are living the dream, the American dream, there in D.C., promising careers, get their own first house. Everything is going great. Planning down the road when they're going to have a family. And all of a sudden, one day, Mike isn't feeling so well. In fact, he starts stumbling around work. He gets lost going home on the bus. Something's wrong. They go to the hospital, they examine, he's got a brain tumor. Here he is, 27 years old, at the beginning of his real life, it's got a brain tumor. They are going to fight it. They are going to beat it. They are going to do whatever it takes. They do the surgery. They do the aggressive treatment. They are going to beat this. They promise that they're going to stick together and stick by each other. It's not going to stop. They're going to stop them. They're going to make it through. He has some good weeks, some bad weeks. Their first anniversary comes. He's feeling pretty good. They go out. They celebrate. This is wonderful. I think we're over it. The next week, he collapses. Spends a stint in the hospital. She determines she's going to bring him home. She brings him home and she goes in the one night. He's looking really pale, very weak. She kisses him goodnight and she says, we're going to make it, we're going to make it. She comes back at about 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning because she just came back. He was gone. Young man, it happens. We can sit here and say, oh, pastor, you're being dismal. No, I'm trying to help you to plan for the future. Make the plans you need, because here's the reality. We're going to die. The best we can do is postpone it for a while. We need to prepare for the time we leave this life. We need to know what's going to happen next. We need to plan to say, okay, if my life ended this week, this month, do I know where I'm going to spend eternity? We had the choir sing, Jesus saves. He came for a reason so you could know where you are spending eternity. He gave his life for a reason so you could know that when this life ends, you will be in heaven. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. This isn't dismal. This is hopeful. This is helpful. Plan. Prepare. Get ready. Because like Samuel, we are going to die. When, we don't know, but we will. We will. There's, a, there's some more similarities here. Like Samuel, after you die, you will live on somewhere else. You're going to continue living. The story is given about Samuel's continuing to live in 1 Samuel 28. It is a weird story. 
It is a story that's got all kinds of uh, trees felled so they can write, write on it. But let's look at it just briefly this morning. In 1 Samuel 28, here's the setting. Okay, We have the situation where it says Samuel was dead, verse 3, and the Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah. And then it goes on and says, And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and wizards out of the land. The Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched at Shunem. And Saul gathered all of Israel together and they pitched at Gilboa. And when Samuel saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. And when Samuel inquired of the Lord, the Lord didn't answer him, neither by dreams nor by Urim nor by the prophets. Then Sam said Saul unto his servants, Find me a woman that has a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant says, Behold, there is a woman that has a familiar spirit at Endor. So he disguised himself, put on other raiment. He went, two other men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, I pray you, divine, conjure up. Speak to the spirits unto me, you know, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me the person whom I shall tell you to bring from the dead. The setting? The setting, we've read some of it, just to reiterate. He's king for 40 years. This is his anniversary date. He's been king. Everything had started really good, but it all went downhill. And in the last few years, it's gotten worse. David has been named as his successor by the prophet Samuel a few years ago. And over the last 15 years, Saul has been trying to kill David off. He's been trying to destroy, destroy him. He has attempted to kill him on multiple occasions. In fact, in his chasing after David and trying to get rid of David, it has totally consumed him that he's going to get rid of David so that David doesn't succeed him to the throne. And he's trying to wipe out David, try and wipe out his family, and he's not been taking care of protecting the borders of Israel. He's been preoccupied with his jealousy against David that he's let down the borders. And as a result, in came the Philistines. And they started to become aggressors and taking over more of the territory. And as a result of his being preoccupied with David, he didn't stop the Philistines. And they built in strength. Instead, the things he was after is anybody on the inside of the nation who were favorable or spoke well of David that he would go after. In fact, he kills 85 of the priests of God because they verbally defended David. They said that David hasn't done so much wrong. You're doing wrong, king. You're becoming consumed by jealousy. He kills 85 of God's, of God's chosen priests. The man's insane. The man is preoccupied. Well, the Philistines come in unchecked, and now they have a mighty force. They're over on the other side there. There they are across the driveway. They've got the, they've got the army in the field over there. And Saul is leading us into battle, and he's got us over here. Well, hey, wait. He sees the number of the troops over there, and he is terrified by the number. And he starts losing people. He's going to lose the battle. He needs some information. God, what do you want me to do? Now he turns to God. Now in a crisis, God, you've got to bail me out. What should I do? But God doesn't answer. God isn't speaking to him in any of the shame, uh, the ways that he thinks God should speak. God refuses to respond because God has rejected him. Because he has rejected God. He's killed God's priests. He's killing, trying to kill God's chosen. So he determines to go and speak through a witch to the, to the dead spirits. Samuel, surely Samuel will talk to me. I, if I can get somebody to bring Samuel from the dead, he'll tell me what to do. He was my counselor, my advisor for all those years. So he plans to go and meet up with this witch. He is so desperate. It's given us some detail here. If you study the detail, he's got to go through enemy lines and he's got to go some six miles behind them in territory they control. He's that desperate that he's going to put himself in harm's way just to get this witch to do his bidding. Now, there's some other little details that are here. Okay, The little details are he disguises himself. He doesn't want her to know it's him. There's a reason why. It's already been read that he, earlier in the chapter, had said that he had put away all the people doing this witchcraft. That was proper. That was right. According to Leviticus, it was a capital offense to use your Ouija board. It was a capital offense to do a seance. 
This was forbidden by God to dealing with dead spirits and trying to communicate with them. God has always forbidden this. In the Old Testament and even in the New, he warns against this. Not to be involved with the spirit world. And so what happens is, is Saul had, when he was king earlier in his rule, he made it illegal. He said, okay, if you're in this land and you're practicing witchcraft or whatever, you know, you're done. And so this woman is underground, so to speak, practicing her, her witchcraft, her conjuring, and Saul knows that if he shows up and says, I'm King Saul, she's going to run the other way. Fear for her life. So he's dressed up, plus he has to go through the enemy troops. He's dressed up in disguise and says to her, you know, please do your conjuring up. Look at what she says. She said, uh, I can't do it because King Saul. Notice the next couple of verses. King Saul has made it illegal. And if you report me, he'll kill me. And so she is saying, you know, I can't do it. I can't do it. You, to me, this is one of the most amazing verses in this whole story is verse 10. Is verse 10, if you look at the story. She is hesitant. She is fearing King Saul's punishment. She doesn't know he's standing in front of her. And King Saul says to her, you know, in disguise, he swears to her by whom? What does your Bible say? Swear by the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He swears by Jehovah. He brings into this conversation God's name. And he says... As the Lord lives, I swear to you, I vow to you before the Lord God Almighty, before Jehovah, you will not be punished. Folk, think of how foolish this is. God has said she shouldn't do this. He has, the only good thing he's done in the last few years is he's outlawed this and forced the, the witches out of the territory. And now he stands there and he brings God into protecting her. Talk about dropping into depths. Talk, talk about being a mess. Talk about being a stupid man. This is Saul. This is the epitome of what he's doing. He swears by God, and she says, okay, I'll do it. She proceeds with her, her conjuring. It says, the woman said, whom do you want me to bring up to you? Verse 11. He says, bring Samuel. She does whatever she does. You know, whatever she does, you know, whatever mumbo jumbo she does, or whatever candle lighting she does, or whatever incense she burns, we don't know. But when the woman saw that it was Samuel, she screamed at the top of her voice. She is terrified. And the woman says to Saul, or then uh, um, she says to him, What have you done? You deceived me. You're King Saul. She immediately has an understanding of what's going on. How that happened, we don't know. But what happens is she knows, literally in the Hebrew, she screams out loud because she is terrified by what just took place. She doesn't understand what's happening. You know, things are happening that she didn't expect. That's the bottom line. And he says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I know I'm King Saul. Don't worry. I promised. I, God is my witness. I won't do you any harm. Though God told me I should have you killed. Um, you know, I'm not going to do you any harm. Tell me what you see. And she goes on. She says, I see gods, Elohim coming out of the earth. The idea of spirits. I see powerful beings, spirits that are coming out of the earth. Now, the question that is going to come up, and you will read in commentaries and all the different things, was this really Samuel? And here's the debate that some will have. For those of you sitting here and doing study Bibles or whatever, you're going to say, did this really take place? Something really happened. Okay, that much is sure. Something is happening in this spiritual realm. So the debate is, was it really Samuel? And some will say, it couldn't be Samuel. It had to be a demonic spirit, something like that, because the normal pattern in, in, throughout Scripture is deceased human spirits, they aren't be able to move around planet Earth. They can't do this. This is not the regime. This is not the idea that, there is not the idea in Scripture that your aunt, your uncle, who has passed away, can come to your house and visit you any time. You know, whenever you have pizza, they show up. Okay, that, that's the idea that, no, that, that can't happen. That can't happen biblically. That is not the norm. You know, the norm is not for them to, and people point and say, this is not the norm. Because those who are in hell, they cannot get out of hell. And those in heaven, there is no indication in the passage of scripture that tells us about them being in heaven, that they come down to this earth. They have questions about what's going on back in, in planet earth, Revelation 6. They wonder about some of the things that are going, still going on on earth, but they're not able to transfer down here. Spirits, human spirits are not omnipresent spirits being anywhere they want. God alone is omnipresent. 
And so they'll point to that. They'll point out to the fact that this was forbidden activity. And Samuel would have nothing to do with it. So this must have been somebody, some spirit that was working together with the woman. And since God has made it clear that the spirits who work with witches are demonic spirits, then this must be a demonic spirit. And that's the normal and understandable explanation for all that happens in that spirit realm, even today. When people claim that they have spirits that are giving them advice and giving them stuff, we're dealing with deceitful spirits. There are those of us who would say, no, I think this really was Samuel. I think the passage supports it for a reason that this was Samuel. This was a very unique situation, very unusual situation. Three times he's called Samuel. Three times he has stated to be Samuel. If God was saying he claimed to be Samuel, but it was a demon, that would seem to be more realistic that God does that at other times. He gives the behind the story information. He just states this was Samuel. She is surprised by what is happening. This isn't the normal routine of what is going on when she usually conjures. This is something unreal, unexpected. She's getting more information than what she ever thought she would get. And she's realizing it's Saul. The description that she gives when Saul says, who is it? She says he's an old man in a mantle. In the Hebrew, it's a very distinct word. The word is a sleeveless garment. It is used for Samuel alone in chapter 15, verse 27. When it says that Saul grabbed his mantle and tore it. It's unique to Samuel in these two passages. Both in 1 Samuel when he's on the earth and this one when he comes up. The message that he gives is very consistent with the message that was already given. Um, It's a message of damnation. The message that Saul doesn't want to hear, but it's a message that has already been given. God has rejected you because you have rejected rejected him. And that was a message Samuel had given him before. And so now it's repeated. Samuel says the same thing. And so it seems to me to be consistent. Saul is asking him to do the job of a prophet. Tell me the future. Okay? Now, let me keep with me on this one. That he's asking him to do the future. And he does tell him the future. Okay? He does act as a prophet. And what he tells him is 100% accurate. That according to the Old Testament rules, you know this is a prophet from God, a message from God, if it's 100% accurate in what it's stated. Samuel is going to say something to him that's going to be 100% accurate. In our understanding of Scripture, deceased people do not have omniscience. They do not know the future. You even have the story where Jesus is talking about the future, um, or he's talking about the spirits in the realm of the dead, and when he's talking about them, he is saying to saying the one in the in the realm of the dead is saying, "What about my family? What about my family? Send somebody." He doesn't know the future; he's only aware of family back there. When the saints are in heaven under the altar, they're saying, God, when are you going to do, you've said you're going to finish up this tribulation, when are you going to do it? They don't know the future. Demons are not omniscient. They know what God has predicted. When it says that Satan knows his time has ended, because God has already said that. Only God is omniscient. Only God knows everything. You say, yeah, but this seems like such an unusual thing. How do you answer it's unusual that Samuel will be allowed to come and to speak? It's unusual like at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus called two other people from the spirit realm in an unusual sense. Moses and Elijah and brought them to communicate with him. There are those rare, rare, rare occasions when God allows, under specific cases and reasons, to have it happen. This is the one, transfiguration is the other. And so there's this communication that's being done. And he's being told, and he's told, you're going to die. He collapses with fear. And he's told, if you read the rest of the story, what happens here is it go, he goes on, he says, you're going to die, verse 18, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord and executed his fierce wrath upon Amalek. That's chapter 15. Therefore hath the Lord done this unto you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel into the hands of the Philistines with you. Tomorrow you're going to die. Your sons are going to die. The Lord will also deliver the host of Israel into the hand. You're going to lose the kingdom. You've been king over 40 years. Everything's lost in 24 hours. Saul collapses. He, just, he won't eat. The witch and his soldiers get him to eat, and he goes back to his troops, sneaks back through before dawn, gets with his troops, goes into battle, and he dies. His sons die. Israel loses, just like what was stated. Here's the big question here, the question that we have. 
What does this passage tell us about Samuel? What does it reveal about Samuel? Very, he's not the point. He's giving us all the, the theological detail. It, doesn't, it isn't designed to give us all that detail, and that's not the focus. But it states enough for us to say, here's what we know. It's just assumed. Watch what happens when Samuel is brought up. It says, when it, he says back in verse 13, Stop being afraid, witch, for you, what, tell me what you see. And the woman said to Saul, I see gods or Elohim ascending out of the earth. He said unto her, What form is he? She said, An old man comes up, he's covered with this particular mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. He stoops with his face to the ground and bowed himself. Samuel says to Saul, Why have you, what's your Bible read? What? What do you have? Disquieted? Anybody have something else? Disturbed? Okay. Why have you broken up my rest? This is the idea in the original language. Why have you broken up the rest to bring me up? And Saul answered, I'm in sore distress for the Philistines. Make war against me. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then verse 16. Samuel said, Wherefore then do you ask, wherefore then, what do you ask of me? He says, Seeing the Lord has departed from you and you have become an enemy. The Lord has done to him as he spake by me. For the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of your hand and is giving it to your neighbor, even to David, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord nor executed his fierce wrath. And then he goes on and tells them the future. Can we draw conclusions? Okay. Again, they're not the point of the passage, but they are there. What we learn about Samuel is this. Though he's been dead for five years, at this point in the story, he's been dead for five years, he's still alive. He's still existing. He is existing as Samuel. He is still himself. He still has some of the appearance. He still has some of even the distinctions of Samuel. He has the ability to think and to interact. So he's not in a zone where he's a zombie. He's a living soul, a living spirit that thinks, that communicates, that can interact. And he has memory. He even remembers his relationship. He remembers what's happened in the past. He recalls. He's aware of and recalls what is, is being played out, that you are being replaced by David. He still retains the memory that you retain, that you have of this life. He's not preoccupied with his past. He is not so overwhelmed with it because he says, hey, I was perfectly content having rest and being out of this mess, and you brought me back to this mess. So here he is, an individual that remembers those things, but he's moved into a realm that is a more peaceful realm, a realm that he's experienced of pleasantness, that he is there, and he thinks that being called back to this earth is not a pleasant thing. So where he's at is better than where he, what he left. Now, some of you are going to look at the text and you're going to say, well, now, wait a minute, Pastor Wayne. It says in this passage, why have you disquieted or disturbed me to bring me up? Okay? And uh, you say, well, wait a minute. I understand that hell is there and heaven is there. So if he says you bring me up, Samuel must have been in hell. No, that's not true. That's not true. Let me just jump to New Testament and explain just quickly to answer that. In the New Testament, we learn more of what it was set, set up like during the time period that Samuel was, this, this story takes place. In the Old Testament, all the dead people went to Sheol, the place of the dead. Sheol is basically sometimes referred to as the upper Sheol or the lower Sheol. Upper, sometimes in the Greek, it's Hades. And people assume, oh, it's all hell. No, that's not true. It just means the realm of the dead. And what we understand from the New Testament that this is the place that is talked about where Jesus tells a story about Abraham and the rich man. Do you remember? Or, um, it tells about Lazarus and the rich man. They both die. And Abraham, the, 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 um, I'm mixing up, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom or paradise. He's in paradise. And it says, the rich man being in torments, he can see and he can communicate and they talk back and forth, but he's in the agony and torments. And between these two areas is a great gulf fix that nobody can go between. This is all the place of the dead. 
Second Peter talks about when Jesus died during the days that he was in the grave before he resurrected, he went to Sheol and he preached to the spirits. Jesus would have been in the upper part speaking to them there as well as those in the lower part that he was communicating because he talks to some of those who are condemned in the flood, as Peter talks about. But Ephesians says that when Jesus ascended up on high, that he led captive, captive, or took all those out of upper Sheol and transferred that place of the dead to what we know as heaven today. He was the first one to go back into heaven, and he took all of those spirits with them. So this upper Sheol is where he said, today you will be with me in paradise. It was in upper Sheol a place of peace, comfort, Old Testament's heaven, though they never used that term. It would have been their place of the dead. But now in our age, since the ascension, it is all, they go up into heaven. And that's where all who we, when we die, we go up now. But those who die, they go to the nether part, the spiritual realm of hell. The lower part is still functioning today. And it's hell today. It's that agony and torment still today. And eventually that too will be put away and people will be cast into the lake of fire. So both of these realms were only temporary. And at the time that Samuel is brought up, Samuel is in this upper shield. And this is where he arises up and he speaks to these people and then he returns to this place of peace, comfort, and good memories. A place that eventually is going to be transferred to heaven. And that's where he is today, since he would have been those transferred. The point being is that after death, we go somewhere. We die. After we die, we live on somewhere, and the choice is yours. Now, when I was growing up and going to church, I was told that there was a third choice. The third choice was purgatory. And you would go there, and you could stay there for a period of time, and you burn away what little sins you have, and eventually you're going to get to heaven. There is no purgatory in Scripture. There is no such thing. It's heaven or hell. That's a concocted idea to make people give them a false security. The Bible is clear. There's heaven or hell, and after you die, you go one or the other. You choose in this life which one it's going to be. So which one have you chosen? Which one have you chosen? You, you've, got, you've got to make a choice. You say, well, I'll wait until, I, until right before I die. You may never know right before when you're going to die. You just don't know. A few weeks back, I was telling you someone on Wednesday night, I'm driving down the road on 78, coming back from a meeting with a missionary, and as I'm driving down the road, all of a sudden I saw this rock about this big come up out of the left lane that was going this way down 78, come over the barrier straight towards my windshield. And in that split second, I'm thinking, I'm going to die. This was headed straight for my windshield. It hit right about here on the windshield and, and smashed the thing. The thing stayed intact, but I had shrouds of glass all the way at the back window on the inside of the car. It was that, that quick, that sudden, that this rock got lifted up by something on the other side and it came and hit my windshield. I didn't plan on that. I'm just very thankful it didn't keep coming through the windshield. Oh, well, I'll wait until that moment, and then I'll stop and think to myself, Jesus, I want you to save me. When I'm just going, you know, maybe you've got better, but when I saw that rock coming, all I'm thinking is, oh, my, whoa. I'm sorry, Deb, I didn't think about our insurances. I didn't think about Tony, the will. You're not in it anyway, so don't worry about it. You've been replaced by your kids. Um, You need to choose now because those moments could happen. Can I give you the third and fourth quickly? Like Samuel, after you die, you leave behind a reputation. It says in the text that they lamented him in verse 3, that they gathered, they mourned over his loss because they appreciated him. When you and I pass out of this life, we're going to leave behind a memory. We, We go on missions trips. A lot of them are being planned. We do these missions trips, and we get to an area around the world, and then when we leave, we leave behind a memory. Okay? We pray and we want, and our desire is that we leave behind good memories. Some of our missionaries have told me about some of the situations where they have had groups in that haven't left good memories. One of our missionaries in Portugal, not to mention Alan's name, but before we got there... He said that, that one, this is a number of years ago, we arrived 
at a, at a time following up another youth group that had just been there for whatever it was, a week, 10 days, Alan could give more of the details. And he was like, Alan was not his normal self. Something was wrong. So we, after we got collected at the airport, walked away and said, Alan, what is wrong? Did we do something? Did I offend you in some way that we don't know about? That you're just, he said, no, no, no. I'm just tired and exhausted because we just put on the plane this morning another youth group. And I said, okay, how'd it go? He said, don't ask. (laughs) But then it came out, because we were staying and he went through the rules, that that other youth group, when they came, if I remember everything right, that the other youth group, when they came the first day, they decided, it was the best day of the week, uh, the two weeks they were there, he said that they decided to use his computer when he was out out of the apartment and getting groceries. They figured they could get on his computer and they could figure out the computer without permission, and it's in Portuguese, but they could figure it out. And some of us remember that that same week, we got some all kinds of emails from Alan that were bad emails that had all kinds of bad sites and pictures on them that they had introduced a virus into his computer and sent some things to his whole mailing list that jeopardized his entire reputation. And so... And Alan said that was the best day of the two weeks. Okay, and so we were coming in, and there was a reputation. They were gone, but they left behind a reputation. Okay, and we did everything we could to try to restore the reputation to say all youth groups are not this way. You know, you you leave behind a reputation. When, when we think about this, Samuel left behind a reputation. During his lifetime, he asked the people. One time he stood up and said, have I ever defrauded any of you? And nobody accuses him. Have I ever ripped you off? Nobody says the reputation is, he's got a good reputation. In his, in his lifetime, the people come to him on two occasions, which we study already. They say, would you pray for us? Would you pray for us? And he says, God forbid that I should sin against God and ceasing to pray for you. You go to Psalms. This is years later, and we read in his reputation, Samuel among them that called upon the name of the Lord. They called upon the Lord, he answered. He still has a reputation for praying. We have a few. We have, we have, a, we have one man in our church history that if I mentioned his name, a lot of you would say, yeah, I remember how he prayed. John Cordaway. Remember when he'd stand up here and pray? There was that, that strong accent. A deep voice that I was so jealous of. Yeah. <laughs> and we remember that. The reputation. We remember that in his life he's known as being loyal to God. And generations later in the book of Acts he's called the prophet of God. Being a loyal prophet. In fact, do you remember the time he's praying and he says, "People, stay, I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask God to send thunder and storm. And he prays, and the thunder and the storm comes. Do you remember the story? Do you remember the time in chapter 12? And it says that it is in the harvest season, and we know that during those two-month period, it never rained in Israel. This is so unusual. He prayed with faith. Hebrews talks about him years later, saying he's an outstanding man of faith. That's his reputation. Because of the way he lived in this life, he left a reputation. Think about it. When you think of George Washington, the first thing comes to your mind. Hello? cherry tree, which isn't a true story, but we all know it, okay? When we think Abraham Lincoln. Okay, honest Abe, freeing the slaves. I know I'm into ancient history. I understand that. Okay, just one of the worst human beings ever, correct? Okay. I'm not a crook. <laughs> yeah, when you're impeached for Watergate. You never met this woman. But hymns, hymn writing. I'm not talking about land, I'm talking about the guy in the Bible. What's that? Greedy, Sodom and Gomorrah. What about this person? This person. I know what I hope they think about me. Yeah. But what will they remember you for? Goofy? Yeah. Sober? Big bucks? <laughs> not us. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We know that's not us. Okay. But what do people... Here's a thought. A thought for every day. thought for the day. Your reputation for all of tomorrow to determine what you do today. 
You can ruin your entire life's reputation in one day. Okay? So you and I need to say, wait a minute, I'm going to spend my life doing something. Digging a hole that's worthless for 52 years? You know, seriously, seriously, some of the things we get involved in are like digging a hole. What good will they do? Which leads me to the number four and final thought. Like Samuel, after you die, you can still have an impact on others for good and God. You and I right now should be focused on that which will, will surpass our lifetime. During his lifetime, Samuel was engaged in things that are amazing. Now, let me pick up on things that come after his life. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and in chapter 19, beyond his life, a company of prophets, Samuel standing within them, and then it says later about Samuel, the prophet, did ordain certain people to be in participation within the worship times. Here's my point, is that what he did is that he started a school of prophets, a seminary, a Bible college, where he was training people for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. He was investing in lives for, be, for ministry beyond him. In fact, he provides leadership in the function of the temple that hasn't yet been built. He is getting things organized, helping men to realize that the mundane activities of gatekeeping, the mundane activities of, of, of being an usher, the mundane activities of cleaning up this place and getting it ready, that it was important to the worship of the entire body. And so he got involved with those things. He helped the next generation in their spiritual walk with the Lord. He, you know, he helped providing the leadership that was needed to keep the organization running, the spiritual organization running so, and getting, getting set and built. In fact, let me take a step further. It says when they are building the temple, getting it ready to build under Solomon, it says Samuel the seer had dedicated, and it's talking about funds, that was under the hand of Shelemoth. That Samuel had also been putting aside funds to help with the temple's building. In other words, what he did, 65 after, years after his death, he had helped financially do things to keep ministry going and preparing it and getting the temple going. You and I can invest in this next generation. It is easy for us to do. We can do it by training our kids. Making sure our kids understand what is important in this life. Sports are great. I'm not going to decry sports at all. But if that's the only thing I've taught my, my family, that that's the most important, I've missed the boat. If I've taught my family the most important thing in your life is having, a, having money, I've missed the boat. It's important. We understand that. The most important thing in your life is, your, is having a big house. It's not going to last. The most important thing is what lasts for eternity, character, contribution to Christianity. Training my kids that the most important thing they can do in their life is serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we, we start. What we need to do is participate in training the next generation now is saying that some of you who are godly individuals come up, step up to the plate and say, I can make an impact in lives for the next generation by teaching the kids in this church, this young generation, the truths of God's word. Invest in lives. Well, I don't know. I don't have much to offer. A godly example, good study habits, you've got a lot to offer. Do it. We can invest by even financially investing in ministries that will outlast us, laying up treasure in heaven, literally, by saying, I'm going to invest in ministries that will share the gospel beyond our existence. In the next week or so, a number of you are going to be asked to be a participant in some of the servant leadership positions of this church that will help maintain a stability to our worship service in mundane ways as well as laying out the future. Well, I'm too busy. Lay up and, and, and help provide for the future by agreeing to be involved in some servant leadership roles, deacons, deaconesses, treasurers, missions committee. Those are valuable ministries that need people to say, I can, I will, and this is my way of helping to plan for the future. You and I should be involved with saying we can do good for, we can do things that are for good and God beyond our life. Invest, plan, 
Think the long term. Look ahead. Don't get caught up. Don't get caught up with only this life right now. This fellow, Zhenkovich or whatever it is. He, in 1947, it's when the USSR was under communist control, all of a sudden he's a government worker. He's in an accounting office. They would give out rations, tickets. That's how you bought food, you paid for things, things of that sort. Well, he went out drinking one night and he misplaced 400 of those ration tickets. These were a black market, you know, gold mine. And he's no, he come, wakes up the next morning with a headache and everything that goes with the hangover. He says to his wife, I think I've lost the 400 ration tickets. They are going to send me to Siberia or to prison or worse. This was a big theft. And if he says, I just don't know what happened to him, he was responsible. So his wife and him concoct a plan. He is going to leave. He's going to hide. He's going to be gone. She goes to the workplace the next day, and she goes and cries and says, Oh, my husband left me. I don't know where he went. He ran off with some woman. He's gone. I have no idea where he's gone. Well, poor me. You know, I'll let you know if I ever see him again. So, years go by. Actually, 28 years go by. He lives in the house and never goes outside the house. His wife takes care of everything, obviously. But his wife dies. He's in the house. What's he going to do? He's going to have to go out. And he's got to get food. He's got to do something. So he determines, I'm going to go to the police station and turn myself in. He goes to the police station. He tells them what happened, you know, 28 years ago. His wife is dead. He's going to, you know, there's no use living anyway because he would die in the house or whatever, whatever you're going to do to me, do to me. But I misplaced those tickets. I never stole them. I don't know what happened to them. The police investigated and they found out that he had misplaced them underneath a paper in his drawer and they were found the very next day at work back in 47. He spent 28 years of, a, of wasting his life. With, he and his wife wasted their life out of fear. Can I tell you a different story? Read you just briefly a phenomenal story, a tremendous story of a man by the name of Wandego. He's in Ethiopia, 1991. He went home to be with the Lord. He was just 20 years old when the missionaries first showed up in his village there in Ethiopia. They had come in with a book and told about the Creator and said to the, that people should worship Him, not Satan. Wendigo and his people, they listened. Within a few weeks of hearing the message, Wendigo publicly announced, I renounce Satan and follow Jesus. He was baptized and immediately he asked to be taught to read so he could learn more from the missionary's book. It was clear from the outset that his love for the Savior had become a driving force in his life. When his infant son was dying of a fever, the witch doctor implored him to make sacrifices to demons. Wendigo refused. He said, I love my baby boy, but I will not sacrifice to demons again. The boy died. The villagers went into their customary rituals of mourning, but as they were wailing and cutting themselves in diabolical fury, Wendigo rushed out to meet them and said, Stop! I miss my child, but God has given me peace in the face of death. I believe that my child is safe in the arms of Jesus. As a result of Wandego's testimony, people began to pay attention to the message of Jesus, but few were still prepared to accept it. In 1936, the Italian army seized the country, and within a few months, the missionaries were expelled. That left behind 48 believers, with Wandego being the leader. The campaign of intense persecution began. The Christians were arrested, beaten, their property destroyed, their churches torched. Yet as often happens, when Satan turns up the heat on God's people, evangelism thrived. Persecution only served to bring more people to faith. And finally, an official named Dogesa decided to make an example of Wandego. After destroying the church's building, Dogesa had Wandego arrested, tied up, beaten in the center of the village. Now give up your religion. Never, he responded. Do not listen to Wandego. See, he is bound. Do not go to his church. It is torn down. But Dogesa had misjudged Wandego. Wandego began shouting to those watching, This rope is not the final punishment or judgment. It is, the only place, it is only placed on me by man. Believe on the Lord Jesus. He will free you from the bondage of sin. At that, Dogesa had the men beat him with a whip. During the flogging, he taunted the believer by saying, The foreigners have gone. They aren't here to help you. Give up. But even then, his faith would not be shaken. I'm not serving the missionaries, but the God who sent them. He will strengthen me. The Lord did. The next day, five men beat him for three hours, determined to break him and win the day. But finally, when he refused to bend, they locked him up in a bamboo cage. He survived, but remained in custody for one year. The day that he was released, 
He got out. And the next day, do you know what he did first? He gathered other Christians together and they went to Dogesa's field, field to help harvest his enemy's crop. In 1942, the missionaries were allowed to re-enter Ethiopia. Imagine their amazement when they learned that God had multiplied their original 48 converts into 3,000 believers. A beaming Wandego met his old friends. Welcome, welcome. This is like heaven. God has sent you back. We need you to teach to all these new believers. See how many there are now, but they're untaught. May I ask you a question? The author writes, it may prove disturbing. How many people have been compelled to come to Christ as a result of watching your life? Somehow I doubt that it's, the number is going to be like 3,000, but let's not get sidetracked by numbers. The issue is commitment. What is there in your life that shows that you are deeply and fundamentally, fundamentally committed to so that all your choices and behaviors are committed to Jesus Christ? Even to the point of sacrifice, we need to have commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to shout out like the saints of old, here I stand and I can do no other but to serve Jesus. Here you are today. Are you serving Christ with the best of your ability? Your life, my life will end. But if it wrapped up today, is there enough that we could hold our heads up before the Lord and say, I'm ready?